At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. If you have a Bible, please make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will be spending our time in verses 26 through 31. Let me begin this way. Who knew that on October 2nd, 1950, wisdom would quietly begin making appearances in the hand-drawn black and white frames of the comic strip section of a newspaper? That was the day Charles Schultz introduced the world to a character named Charlie Brown and his gang of children along with Snoopy and Woodstock. Peanuts ran for the next 50 years and at one time could be found in over 2,600 newspapers, more than 75 countries, and it was an audience that reached more than 350 million people before the digital age, which is incredible to think about. Jen Wilkin is a Christian speaker and author from the Village Church in Texas, and she wrote an article for Relevant Magazine last year entitled, Why It's So Important to Know the Difference Between Godly and Worldly Wisdom. She said that part of the genius of Schultz's work was that children spoke with wisdom far beyond their years. They were philosophers and intellectuals and sages and savants and theorists. It's entertaining and intriguing to us because we associate wisdom with age and maturity. Even though age and maturity are no guarantee for wisdom, you can die a fool. It's entertaining because these children would come out with all these musings and these thoughts that truly spoke wisdom. We intuitively know that deep wisdom isn't often found in children. It often comes through decades of learning. Sometimes it shows up the same time as gray hair and bald heads. I was just thinking this week, I think it's the first time in Woodside's history that more than half of our campus pastors are bald. (laughs) These are the things I think about sometimes. Pray for me. I'm in the minority at this point. So if you want a mentor, you don't usually go looking for someone at a preschool. Like when you're fifth grader, or in elementary school for that matter, really. You could probably go through high school, maybe college, I don't know. But like uh, in our home, our fifth grader, I remember a few years back, uh, he or she, it's really both of them, had taken our phones. And we would say to them, please don't go searching anything on the internet. And I remember... Uh, One of them speaking up and definitively as a fact saying, Dad, there's nothing bad on the internet. (laughs) Like, I know this. This is a true fact. Everybody knows this. What's your problem? Or pretty much every time you as a parent try to infuse a little wisdom in your teenagers and help them try to make a better decision. Like, why don't you get some breakfast before school? You might be hungry later. It's fine. Or you want shoes from StockX that cost how much money? It's fine. Or why aren't you making a left-hand turn into, uh, why are you, that is, making a left-hand turn into oncoming traffic when in America we drive on the right-hand side of the road? And your daughter says, it's fine. And you say, no, it's not fine. We're going to die. And then you grab the wheel and you're turning and fighting and... 
Oh, please pray for every parent who has a student driver in their car. You're just trying to impart wisdom. You have a test tomorrow, but you haven't studied. It's fine. It won't be after you get your grade. Maybe uh, you've read the book of Job in the Old Testament. It's a genre of literature called wisdom literature. Job, of course, was an Israelite who thought he had wisdom. His friends thought they had all kinds of wisdom, and they bantered back and forth on who had uh, the best wisdom, the greatest wisdom, the true wisdom for their conversation. Job said in chapter 12, verse 12, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. But let's think about a contrast. If that's true, which we know it is in the word of God, then how much wisdom must reside in the one who is called the ancient of days? And let me remind us of an important distinction as we dive into this topic once again this week. Wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. Knowledge has to do with knowing the facts. My son and his friends, they have knowledge to understand things. They know that if you jump off the bridge that's at DeQuinder and I think 22 Mile next to Yates Cider Mill, on most days, you jump off that bridge into the Clinton River, there's a good chance you break your leg or something worse. He also has the knowledge to know that after a couple days of, of rain, constant downpours, that the river is higher than it was. And so now he has some knowledge to think that what used to be an impossibility might now be a possibility. So the question becomes, what will he do with the knowledge? Will it be wisdom or folly? What do you think the 14-year-old son of mine and all of the neighborhood kids chose? Folly. And by God's grace, they all lived to tell the tale. They jumped off the bridge over and over and over. He came home soaking wet. We had no idea. But he had a, I think he had the time of his life, honestly. Wisdom, it's the application of knowledge. Uh, the truth is, I've been a fool a thousand times and somehow I'm still here. So we have this idea that wisdom has to do with knowing the facts and applying the facts to make good decisions. Listen to how Jen describes godly wisdom within that article. She says it so beautifully, I couldn't state it better. Because God is not bound by time, he is able to determine the end from the beginning, acting within time with perfect awareness of all outcomes. Think then how much wisdom resides in the one who holds all knowledge. Because God holds all knowledge, he is able to choose perfect ends. God, by contrast to you and me, never extrapolates. Possessing all the facts, he combines them with perfect insight and chooses wisely every time. Wise humans may have their judgment clouded by personal bias, but God is free of that limit as well. His wisdom is perfect. It is implicitly good. But what of worldly wisdom? What of human wisdom? Maybe you've heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. David Dunning and his grad assistant Justin Kruger studied this phenomenon in the 90s called cognitive bias of illusionary superiority. Okay, a very fancy term. This is how they entitled their argue, uh, article. They put it in layman's terms. In layman's terms, the smarter you feel, the dumber you are. <laughs> they studied and found that people who have a high confidence in their competence actually have lower competence. 
And people who have lower confidence in their competence actually have higher competence. William Shakespeare wrote about it 400 years ago. The fool thinks himself to be wise, while a wise man knows himself to be a fool. Or in the words of the Chinese philosopher Confucius, real knowledge is to know the extent of one's ignorance. Our culture tends to think of itself as wise. Would you agree? If you don't think so, spend a few minutes reading people's musings on social media platforms that rake in about $175 billion a year. And what do you find? You'll find people fully confident in their own competence. Uh, People who are so self-assured in their expertise on a plethora of topics that they've never truly studied. You'll find people who are convinced their airtight arguments will win over all their skeptics through the comment section, because that really works. Elitism shows up everywhere, and it shows up even within the church. The church is not immune. I was listening to a podcast last week where Tom Rainer, a prominent Christian uh, leader who also wrote a couple dozen books, he was talking about the uh, digital testimony of the church. And he said, if I were a skeptic learning about Christianity through what I read from Christians on social media, I would likely never step foot in a church. It might not, we, we know this, it might not be every one of us, but there's enough that the reputation's been fixed. So we are far too quick to trust in our own intuition. We are far too quick to trust in our own wisdom. We are far too quick to fall into the deception of worldly wisdom. So our key question this morning is what causes us to trust in God's wisdom over human wisdom? If we're so prone to fall into this trap of trusting in our human wisdom, how is it then that we could trust God's wisdom? How can we make that shift and and in our minds turn towards what the reality of truth ultimately is? The reality is Following Jesus means embracing a message that stands contrary to the power and wisdom of the world. And this is our challenge. And so Paul, he invites the Corinthians and us, certainly there's an extension to every church in all of time, to think about two realities that will help guide us into trusting God's wisdom, understanding God's wisdom, and trusting God's wisdom. Here's the first. Consider who God saves. This actually leads us into the wisdom of God to consider whom he saves. Look at verses 26 through 29. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, purpose clause, why, here's why, no human being might boast in the presence of God. The idea of calling, it's an important concept to Paul. This is the fifth time in just the first chapter that he talks about calling. In verse 1, he says, Paul, speaking of himself, was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. In verse 2, he says the Corinthian Christians were called to be saints together. Verse 9, disciples of Jesus are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
verses 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul wants them to recognize how the power of God was at work in their salvation. It was not of their own doing, so he invites them to think about who they were before Christ. And he brings out these truths about the majority of the people within the Corinthian church. He says, not many of you in high school were voted most likely to be a sage. Not many of you were voted most likely to become powerful or to be famous. The world labeled most of them as uneducated, weak, looked over, and lower class. And if you, in our standards, in human standards, consider yourself wise and powerful and famous, and maybe some of you in worldly terms are, all you need to do is shift who you're comparing yourself to. And so in this case, maybe he's thinking that they're comparing themselves to others. Well, maybe if you put yourself in one of those categories, the comparison ought not to be with other, belie- uh, other Christians, other believers, other human beings. Compare yourself to God. That's actually what God did with Job to teach him wisdom. At the end of all of their conversation, he says to Job, who are, who are you? Or he asks the question, where were you? Where were you when I established the foundations of the universe? Where were you when I spoke all things into existence? Where were you when I had the thought of you in my mind before you ever had breath in your lungs? It all depends on the measuring stick. Yet these are exactly the kind of people whom God has chosen to show his power and wisdom. These are the people to whom God has chosen to show his power and his wisdom. And if you remember two words from this sermon, it's really the first two words of verse 27 because this might leave us in that place of low self-esteem, but the point is not that God's trying to strip us of all our self-esteem. What he's trying to do is trying to center our esteem in Christ, not in ourselves. And so he makes this turn in verse 27. It's a connector word. It's this conjunction. But remember these two words. If you remember anything this morning, remember this. He starts with but. It's it's this connection. Remember the song conjunction, junction. What's your function? What's it all about? What's it mean? The function of the but is to highlight a contrast. Not this, but that. Whatever comes before, the conjunction kind of gets canceled out, and what comes after is more important. That that kind of dominates what came before. So all the things that were mentioned before, well, this changes it with this contrast, with this conjunction. So yes, not many of you were powerful or wise, not many of you were famous, but God, that's what comes next. Fill in any descriptive you want in verse 26. Yours might be a a different list. Before Christ, maybe the world would say that you weren't wise enough. Maybe you thought about yourself. You weren't powerful enough. You weren't successful enough, talented enough, smart enough, beautiful enough, strong enough, athletic enough. You basically weren't good enough. But God. Just study that in scripture and you'll understand the gospel. But God. 
God is next. And God, he says, called you. He called you. Maybe if you haven't received Jesus, you'll understand this morning, he's calling you now. And this is the beauty of the gospel. God means, but God, it means that God cherishes what the world has trashed. And let's be honest, if all of our sin was laid bare, all of us would be thrown into the trash bin by the world. Out of all the nations, God chose Israel. Out of all the brothers, God chose King David. Out of all the cities, he chose Bethlehem. Out of all the women, he chose Mary. Out of all the families, he chose Joseph's. Out of all the options, God chose you. Let me just consider that for a moment. That God chose you. He chose you to show the world real wisdom, real truth, real love, real grace, real forgiveness. He chose you to show the world reality. So the blind will see, so that people might know. And he asks us to do this, not through yelling, not through shouting, not through temper tantrums or anger, but through offering faith, hope, and love, through offering Jesus and a cross. That's how he asks us to do it, by offering Jesus and a cross. And when you think about it, we've already spoken about it this morning through the service. It is folly to the world. Think about the message. Here is God, the God of the universe from eternity past existing in a triune reality, Father, Son, and Spirit, and then God putting on flesh, the theanthropos, theos, God, anthropos, man, the God-man, a perfect integration of God and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ who comes to the earth through a virgin birth. As he grows, he lives a life of complete, obedient, submissive perfection. And then as he goes through life, he does miraculous deeds. He's walking on water. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's calming storms. He's multiplying food. He's multiplying wine. He's rising people from the dead. Also that he goes to a wooden cross where he dies a criminal's death, which happened at that time in the first century, but it's for the sins of the entire world for all of time. And then three days later, after he's been placed in a tomb, the tomb is now empty, he's been resurrected, and he ascends to heaven with the Father. Now, when you think about the story, what's the world say? Fairy tale. Friends, but we say life, truth good news, right? This is folly to the world, but to those who are being saved, it's this beautiful, fragrant, life-giving reality. He called you to share this with others. That demonstrates his wisdom. King Solomon, he had it all. He had it all in the world's eyes, but he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter five, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. 
Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Think about it this way. If God chose, I have to use the illustration because of the time of year. Forgive me, but I need to. It's a, it's, it's a big cry from reality, but you'll get the point. If God chose the Lions to shame every other NFL team this year, I'm pretty sure our words would be few. We would all recognize that this was an act of God alone. There is no other possible way that this could ever happen outside of the supernatural hand of God. Friends, don't you think, uh, or, or let me put it this way, don't think that you did God a favor by signing up for his team. He didn't need you. He didn't need me. But he called your number. He said, I want you. And don't be resentful of that reality. Celebrate it. He's called you. As we respond to his goodness with grace and with gratitude, our trust then grows. So Paul's inviting us to think about these two realities that will help guide us into a deeper sense of God's wisdom. Consider whom God saves, and we've already spoken of this some as well, consider how God saves. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you like to underline words, those are three important words to underline. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God doesn't simply call us into salvation. He is also the one who does the saving. Paul reminded the Corinthians of what they didn't have in the world, and now he reminds them of what they do have in Christ, and he uses three distinct terms to talk about that reality. This is not worldly wisdom. This is godly wisdom incarnate. This is godly wisdom put to pen and paper as well. So Paul says, here is the wisdom of God, that through Jesus Christ, you have now his righteousness. In Christ Those who have placed their faith in him alone, believers in Jesus have received right standing before God. They are no longer under the wrath of God. They have been moved from the wrath of God to the family of God. By receiving the righteousness of Jesus, a fancy word that we use for this is to talk about the righteousness of Jesus being imputed to us, given to us, so that our sins are covered over and his perfection is seen by the Father through his sacrifice. His righteousness given. It says that we are sanctified. It means that we are set apart for God. Sanctifying something is setting it apart for a holy purpose. They would sanctify the instruments in the Old Testament temple. They would sanctify things to be used for God. He's sanctifying each of us, molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus for his good purposes. Redemption. The believer has been transferred from slavery to sin to freedom, eternal freedom. Through no action on our part, through no degree of human wisdom or plan, God worked in Christ crucified to accomplish all that was necessary to allow us to stand before him. Now, you might be thinking, does this mean God saves us entirely from, uh, by his own action? <clears throat> or do we contribute anything to salvation? Well, here's a distinction we need to make. 
When it comes to choosing God, there is divine mystery at play. God chooses us, and yet we kind of respond by choosing him. There's some kind of divine mystery at play there that's hard to fully comprehend. But when it comes to actually accomplishing the work of salvation, we contribute nothing. Nothing. And many of us perhaps grew up in environments where the religious system taught us that we do contribute something. That it is what we do, certain acts or behaviors that get added on to the work of Jesus and the combination of the two bring us to the Father. But that would, that would not then line up at all with the verse because what Paul is saying is if we recognize it's all because of Jesus, then we have nothing to boast about. But if it was our action, then that gives us something to boast about. So we must not bring anything to the table if we're to be consistent with what Paul is saying here. If we grasp whom God saves and how God saves, then our boast really should only have one recipient. That's our idea this morning. As we close this service together and as we respond in worship in a few minutes, we must boast in God's power and wisdom. That is our only boast. Let me help you think of it like this. Imagine if you were in a kayak in the middle of Stony Creek Lake in the park. Uh, we live near there. We go there often, three, four times, sometimes a week. And you know, let's just imagine that you're not a very strong swimmer, but you took a kayak out right into the middle of the lake. You were the furthest point from every shoreline that you could be. You knew that you could never make it to the shore, but you weren't expecting to be in the water at all. You didn't bring a life jacket because you just wanted to enjoy the scenery. Didn't want to get too warm in the summer. So you're out in the middle of Stony Creek and the kayak sinks. And you shout and you scream and you flail about, uh, but you're starting to dip below the surface of the water. And so you're trying to just keep yourself alive, trying to cry out for help, but eventually you start falling below that surface, lose consciousness, and begin drowning. A lifeguard sees you. They see all your limbs flailing about, and they come out to you. They go underneath the surface, they pull you up, you're unconscious, you're not contributing anything, and they pull you to the shore. You've got water in your lungs, they give you CPR, they put breath back into your body, you spit up the water, breath comes back into your lungs and you're revived and saved. Now think two weeks later as you're telling the story, what is your boast? Is your boast, man, it's, I'm so glad that, that I had like the lungs that I have to shout as loud as I could. You should have heard how loud my shout was. That's why I'm still here because you could have heard me like three cities away. It's a good thing I'm as strong as I am because if I wasn't as strong as I am, he wouldn't have had or she wouldn't have had time to come out and rescue me. So it's only because of my strength and all my working out and all the things I do at the gym every day and all the things I lift and carry, it's only because of all that stuff that I'm actually still here. You wouldn't say any of that. Your only boast would be in the lifeguard. You just say, they saved me. They saved me. I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything. I, I was dead. And he saved me. She saved me. That's the reality of Jesus Christ. That through the cross of Christ, you've been saved through faith. You've contributed nothing. He's done the work. 
And that means I cannot boast in myself. The only name that ought to be on my mouth is his. It's his. What is your boast? He didn't save yourself, he couldn't. Our boast is God's power. It's God's wisdom. It's God's son, God's sacrifice, God's calling, God's healing, God's forgiveness, God's mercy. We were hopeless, but God. We were helpless, but God. We were lost, but God. We were homeless, but God. We were orphaned, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, gave you his son. That's why I love the words, and that's how we're going to close. And I pray that as we sing it, that you'll shout it. That's why we sang it today. His cross, our freedom. His stripes, our healing. His blood is still speaking. His love still reaching. Glory to God forever. As we prepare to worship, would you stand and let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray for every single person who might be watching online, anyone who is in this room this morning, and they sense your calling upon their life, yet they have not responded to that calling. Father, I pray that you would in this moment through your spirit convict them Help them to realize the destitute situation that they find themselves in, that they are in desperate need of the work of Jesus for salvation. That even now as we pray, they could take their fingers and they could type connect. They could learn about you and receive you. Even now as we sing, as our service closes, Father, that there will be brothers and sisters right up front that you give them the courage to come and say, I need Jesus, I'm drowning. And Father, for all of us who have been saved, our unity is Christ, our mind is Christ. When we think about the cross, we think less of ourselves. That's what holds us together. And so Father, our boast is Jesus. All that we can do is worship you. All we can do is praise you. There's nothing else we can offer you but our very lives. So Father, we lift them up to you today. We don't want to leave this place powerless. We know that we've been given your power. We don't leave this place a fool. We leave with your wisdom. And so Father, let us boast in the wisdom, the message of Jesus Christ and him alone crucified. That is the salvation of the world. There's only one name under heaven by which man must be saved. It is the name of Jesus. Let us sing to him and worship him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.